Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm very excited today to have Dr. Angela Rasmussen, who's an associate research scientist at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. First of all, I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time to be part of this and for all your public outreach work in general. I think at this time and, and in general, it's important to have scientists that go out there and speak to the wider public. So Dr. Rasmussen's research is focused on the host response to infection. So the host in, in this case, obviously, is us humans. Uh, and that includes predicting severity of the response and also drug development and drug repurposing when it comes to viruses and other infectious diseases. And she's particularly interested in viruses that are highly pathogenic and newly emergent. So this includes Ebola, SARS, MERS, and now, of course, um, the topic of the day is coronavirus or COVID-19. So thank you so much for being part of the program, Angela. So I was hoping to start off, if you could just talk us through what actually happens to the human body when it's affected by a coronavirus, and, and we can discuss maybe a mild case versus more severe cases. What actually happens? Sure. Um, so the first thing that happens is the virus has to infect a cell that is susceptible to a coronavirus infection. In this case, that, um, that susceptibility is defined by a molecule called ACE2 that's expressed on your, on your lung cells um, and in your respiratory tract. So the virus has a protein on the surface of the virus particle called spike that binds to ACE2 and brings the virus into the cell where it starts replicating. When it replicates, the virus copies its genome, it makes viral proteins, and it packages, it uses those proteins to package the genomes that it's made into virus particles, which we call virions. Those are then secreted from the cell. They go on to infect other cells. Some of them will get into the saliva or mucus um, where they can be transmitted to other people. Uh, and your body makes a response to that infection. Um, it, generally speaking, most people uh, have what we call an antiviral um, innate immune response. And that means that a cell that's infected can recognize that it's infected with the virus. Uh, once it recognizes that it's infected, it begins to secrete molecules called cytokines that are essentially messengers that tell other cells around it that it's infected and triggers the immune system to respond. Um, sometimes that process can sort of be derailed. Um, there are many important checks and balances uh, in terms of of getting a good immune response that is going to kill the virus, kill the infected cells, but not hurt you. When that process gets out of whack and dysregulated, uh, the, the immune and inflammatory response can go into effectively overdrive and cause some of the symptoms of disease, especially in severe cases. So how does coronavirus or COVID-19 compare to some of the other viruses you've studied, Ebola, SARS? MERS, what's what's so different about this and, and why are we going into a kind of global lockdown or quarantine versus some of the more regionalized responses in the past? So first thing I'll say is that we actually don't have much host response data on uh, SARS coronavirus 2 or COVID-19 um, to compare with those other viruses. Uh, but in general, those other viruses, MERS, SARS, Ebola, um, high pathogenicity influenza uh, all do the same thing in severe cases. They, they cause this out of control, unregulated inflammatory response in the tissues that are affected. Um, 
So in Ebola, that's systemic, which is why Ebola ends up being uh, a disease that has uh, hemorrhagic fever. It affects many different parts of the body. Um, in MERS, for example, it's primarily a disease of the respiratory tract. So that um, inflammation is occurring primarily in the respiratory tract. And I would think that given that COVID-19 disease uh, is characterized by pneumonia, um, as well as, as other types of respiratory disease, um, that, that that is the case, that SARS coronavirus 2 is more like MERS than it is like Ebola. Right, that makes sense. Can can you explain a little bit about what we know and and maybe some myth busting around the origin of the virus itself? There's obviously a, a a very widely debunked paper that came out early in the outbreak claiming that it might have been engineered, and a, and a lot of people have refuted that. Can you tell us what is known currently about actually how the virus originated, where it came from? Yeah, so we think that the virus originated in bats. Um, many coronaviruses uh, originate in bats. Um, bats have many coronaviruses uh, that circulate um, amongst different bat species in the wild. These are their normal viruses that uh, they are infected with. Um, viruses, like most other biological entities, um, organisms, uh, have a normal ecology. Um, so bats have coronaviruses. They circulate among these bats. In 2017, a group found a coronavirus, um, a SARS-like coronavirus in a bat in China, in Yunnan province, uh, that, that is the most genetically similar virus to SARS coronavirus 2. Um, it's highly, highly similar, which suggests that SARS coronavirus 2 evolved from that bat uh, SARS-like coronavirus. Um, we don't know for sure because we haven't found a bat or another species that has an identical virus to SARS coronavirus 2. Um, but we think that it evolved from, uh, from a virus in that same lineage as, as the bat virus. The reason why we don't think that it was engineered um, or it was, you know, some sort of biological weapon is because the changes, the genetic changes in the virus um, between the bat and SARS coronavirus 2 do not suggest any type of um, of editing, uh, right. of intentional editing or cloning or anything like that. Um, They're consistent with the way that a virus would naturally evolve. Right. That's helpful and, and makes a lot of sense. Can you can we talk a little bit about how the virus affects different people? So there's a lot of numbers thrown around, around, you know, 2% fatality rate or mortality rate. And, and these are obviously based on a relatively small number of studies. But what, what do we know about the numbers in terms of mortality and also how it affects people of different age groups or, or people with different respiratory conditions? Well, it, it does seem to be pretty consistent that people um, of older age do are at higher risk of developing severe disease, as well as people with a number of different underlying medical conditions, including pre-existing respiratory disease, such as asthma or COPD, um, cardiovascular disease, which can mean a lot of different things, right. um, from you know basic hypertension to uh, heart attacks and strokes and things like that. Um, diabetes is also a risk factor. So we, what we don't know is how 
um, how people who don't have these risk factors get severe disease. We don't really understand what the true risk is for people who may not have those. So there, there are probably um, genetic factors uh, as well as environmental factors that contribute to uh, people outside of those risk groups getting severe disease. In terms of the case fatality rate, that is sort of a moving target. And it's also going to be pretty dependent on different populations as is transmission. Um, so I'm not an epidemiologist. I'll say that right now. Um, <laughs> so I'm not going to discuss the finer points of how case fatality rate is calculated or anything like that. But uh, a case fatality rate, for example, in a nursing home, such as the one outside of Seattle, uh, where a number of patients have died, um, is going to have a much different case fatality rate than, say, uh, a wider population of like a city um, where there are people of all different ages and risk groups um, or like a college or university where there are there are going to be large populations of young people who are at low risk. So it's hard to get a handle on what the overall case fatality rate is going to be. Um, a, a recent study that came out this past week in science predicted that um, that the, the case fatality rate could be brought down to below one. Um, and that's what the data from South Korea shows as well. Um, however, that we're a long way from, from probably doing that here just because, or in the U.S., just because of uh, the, the lag in testing and the, the reduced testing capacity that we have. We can't accurately calculate mortality if we're not able to identify all the cases in our community. Why is the testing not as widely available as it should be? Is it a preparedness thing? Is it is it expensive or, or what is it? It's really, um, well, a, a big answer to that question is I don't know. Um, it's partly, I think, a preparedness thing. Uh, in the U.S., we've gutted our pandemic preparedness um, mechanisms at the, in the government and there's certainly been less research money um, for basic science um, and infectious diseases. Uh, but the testing process itself is not expensive. It's a routine test um, called quantitative RT-PCR or QRT-PCR. Most labs can do it. All Most clinical diagnostic labs have the capability of doing it and the assays themselves are not difficult to design. So. I really don't know why it has taken so long for these assays to, to be rolled out and to get going. And I we've recognized that we have a problem with this for the last few weeks. I, I don't know at all why there is not more widespread testing available. Well, how about the other kinds of tests like the IgM or IgG tests? I've, I've heard a little bit about those. They're essentially a measuring the antibodies. So, so someone who's been previously infected by the virus are are these more going to be more useful or less useful for for any reason i know they don't measure necessarily active virus but i think they're easier to produce i think that they're going to be very useful in terms of understanding the overall prevalence of the virus um especially in cases where there was no testing um cases that were probably really mild and people may not even realize that they were infected with it um it will be very helpful to have antibody tests to go back and look and see how many people actually had this. Uh, right. Because we probably won't, we won't be able to catch every single case with testing. 
but I don't think that that's as useful as a diagnostic, um, partly because antibody responses early in the infection um, are, are not as obvious. Um, they would be IgM responses. Uh, you don't switch to producing IgG until later in the infection process, and you may not be able to detect uh, the full breadth of the antibody response while a patient is acutely ill. Right. So and I, we had we asked for people to send in questions over Twitter before this, and a, a bunch of them were about how could we predict who's going to respond more severely and, and who's not. And, and I seem to be getting the picture from you, though, is that we may not have enough data to answer some of these questions and, and also why. So Charlotte Guzzo asked why some countries have lower mortality rates than others. Um, Professor Jonathan Jones asked, is there any data on genetic variation for susceptibility of coronavirus? Is there any emerging data around either of these points or is it, are we still really in the early stages of needing to collect the data? We're still in the early stages of needing to collect the data. Um, certainly the reason why different um, countries have different case fatality rates, as I said, with um, South Korea, they have been testing extremely aggressively. So they've been able to detect a lot of the really mild cases that are often missed. Right. When you have a much larger um, total population of people who are infected, your case fatality rates are going to decrease if um, if those other cases are mild survival, survivable cases. Um, so that, that may explain why that South Korea's um, mortality rate is so much lower than say Italy or Iran or the U.S. Um, is because they've been able to catch so many of those mild uh, or even, you know, subclinical asymptomatic cases. Uh, so that, that explains that. Um, can you repeat the second question? Professor Jonathan Jones was asking about any data specifically on genetic variation. And actually, there was a paper that uh, was published in MedArchive, posted on MedArchive today about blood groups and their relationship to um, potentially different uh, different risks. And, and he's asking about genetics and MHC haplotypes, which is one of the kind of main areas of the genome that's that's related to immune response. Do you, do you know about any emerging data or, or studies that are going to address this? I think that those studies are excellent, and I'm sure that people are planning those studies, um, but I don't, I have not seen any data that suggests that your MHC haplotype or genotype really predisposes a person to COVID. However, um, the caveat is that we're still in the midst of this epidemic. And in fact, we're may not even be to the halfway point, um, right. probably not, according to most of the models and projections that I've seen. So that data will come out, but it to my knowledge, nobody has linked a specific genetic locus or loci to uh, to COVID-19 risk. Um, other than if you consider it genetic, um, the, the difference that has been observed in the case fatality rate for men and women, um, right. that may not be genetic, though. That's one explanation for it. Uh, but another explanation is that in certain countries um, where SARS and MERS have emerged, um, there are also those sex differences. And uh, again, it could be behavioral, it could be cultural, um, where 
men are at, at greater risk of contracting the virus altogether. That's probably the case for MERS since it's transmitted by dromedary camels in the Middle East. Um, and men are much more likely to be um, in close proximity to those camels. Right. So, and also with, with regard to both SARS and SARS coronavirus 2, in China, for example, um, a number of men, many more men smoke than women, uh, which could also be a predisposing factor to severe illness. So um, it's really an open question whether uh, the sex differences that we've observed are biologically driven, um, meaning that they could be genetic. Uh, and certainly there is evidence for that. I mean, certainly the, something could be encoded on the X or Y chromosomes. The receptor for the virus ACE2 is encoded on the X chromosome. So it's possible that there could be a link there, but there are other explanations as well. Right. Let's Let's talk about the future because the, as you said before, this is just getting started. And, and I was wondering if you could give us an overview of this now quite um, widely read imperial study that has suggested that we might be in a uh, in a state of social distancing or or pandemic response for a long period of time. Yeah, um, I, I can certainly talk about that because it's a very grim study. Um, However, uh, I, again, I'd like to say I'm not an epidemiologist and I'm not a modeler, so I won't be discussing the finer points yeah. of the study. But the point that I always try to make, because the data is so scary and because it has triggered policy decisions by both the U.S. and the um, U.K. governments to enact these much more stringent social distancing measures, um, is that it is a model. It is built on a mathematical formula um, to make predictions based on data. And depending on the data that's going into a model like that, the model can change. And that's really what that study showed. It showed a variety of different scenarios, how many people would be predicted to get ill and how many people would be predicted to die um, in a number of different scenarios. So if we did nothing, um, I think that that study concluded that 2.2 million people in the United States would die. Um, if we enacted current social distancing measures, um, which are relatively moderate, even though they seem fairly <laughs> extreme to most people, um, we, we can cut that number in half. If we enact much more stringent social distancing measures over a much longer period of time, up to 18 months, which is the Project, uh, projected time frame in which we need to develop a vaccine, um, then we can cut it down to below a million. Um, so that, you know, is a powerful argument for basically staying in our houses for the next 18 months, which would be completely disastrous to our economies, the, yeah. the global economy, um, and is probably not feasible. Uh, it doing that kind of um, lockdown effectively as they've done in China is going to be much more difficult in, in democracies like uh, the United States and the United Kingdom um, and, and much of Europe. Uh, so I think that it, you know, if there is something that can go in to disrupt that model, it might change those projections. And we know that we probably won't have a vaccine realistically for probably at least 18 months, even though they've begun enrolling people in clinical trials here in Seattle, um, and they're starting to, to actually test vaccines in people, 
the the amount of time that is required to determine if people develop protective immunity and that immunity is long term uh, enough to be effective is, I would say, at minimum a year, which is what uh, public health authorities, Tony Fauci here in the U.S. have projected. But I think realistically, it's going to be closer to 18 months in the best case scenario to evaluate the safety and efficacy and scale it up for um, widespread population level vaccination. Um, but another thing that could trigger that model to change um, is the development or the identification of effective antiviral therapies. So we would be looking at a much less restrictive uh, time frame um, if, for example, some of these drugs that are already widely available, such as chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, uh, were shown to work. Um, so that that is reason to have hope that we could, you know, flatten the curve sooner than that Imperial College study has predicted. Some of the other therapies that are being considered, I know, have been considered previously for Ebola, like uh, remdesivir by Gilead. What, what are, in your view, what are the most interesting or potentially interesting therapies and, and what's it going to take to prove that those work and start deploying them? So for all of the therapies, what's needed is a, a double blind randomized clinical trial. Um, it maybe doesn't have to be double blind, but definitely a randomized and controlled clinical trial. Um, with uh, remdesivir, I believe that trial is already going on. Um, now, remdesivir is a broad-spectrum antiviral. Uh, it didn't work for Ebola, but that doesn't mean that it won't work for SARS coronavirus 2. However, the only way that we can determine that is through a clinical trial. And a good example is um, that a paper came out yesterday in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that a combination of HIV protease inhibitors that have been re reported to have results, you know, used in treatment anyways of patient, COVID-19 patients who survived um, as, as well as had previously shown um, animal and uh, some limited patient efficacy for SARS and MERS coronavirus, um, that, that just completed a clinical trial in 200 patients in China and failed. Uh, there was no effect on, on clinical outcome for the patients who took uh, the drugs versus did not. And some of them actually had adverse side effects. So not every drug is going to work, but just because a drug didn't work for one thing doesn't mean that it won't work for this. Um, the good news is that there are a number of these different drugs uh, in the pipeline. So ideally, you know, one, one would work um, and even better, maybe more than one will work. So people will have treatment options and there will hopefully be widespread availability of antiviral therapies to treat this. What are the chances that the virus actually sticks around in the population? So we have the flu that comes back every year. It's seasonal or endemic. And I'm, I'm honestly not too sure on the precise definition of, of endemic, but I've heard it thrown around a lot. What, what is your view on, is this something that we're going to have to learn to live with and then vaccine development becomes even more essential? Um, or, or is it something that we can knock out once and, and then not have to worry about this specific virus again, but we'll obviously have to worry about others. Yeah, I, that's an excellent question. And a lot of that really depends on vaccine development. Um, I think that it's completely possible that this is something that could, is something we're just going to have to live with, um, add another virus to 
the number of cold and flu viruses that um, occur seasonally here in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, I don't I don't know. It would really depend. It will really depend on how the vaccine works um, and how available it is. I would think that given the urgency of this situation, uh, a vaccine should be made widely available. Um, I would think that the World Health Organization would ensure that it is. Uh, but we really won't know that um, until we find out how well this vaccine works. Are there risks associated with it? Is it not indicated for certain people? Um, that sort of thing. So I think time is right. going to tell about se both seasonality and whether the virus will become endemic. Why is the flu virus seasonal? Why, why does that one work that way? So there's a lot of different reasons why seasonality is not just about the ambient temperature outside. Um, all of these viruses are zoonotic viruses, meaning that they come from animals. And with flu, the ecology is very complicated. You know, flu can replicate in a variety of different mammals right. um, and birds, and uh, and some of them are domestic animals. Uh, so a lot of it has to do with those animals' biology, um, the seasons in which those animals reproduce, uh, as well as the weather um, and how ambient temperature can predispose people to be more or less susceptible to respiratory viruses. Um, that was actually recently shown in a paper by Akiko Iwasaki in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that showed that uh, influenza in particular um, was was more able to infect mice and cause disease in low temperature, low humidity environments uh, because the animals had a dampened host response um, in those in those conditions. So it's kind of um, I try to explain it as as seasonality is like um, it's like climate change. You can't say that it's just changes in the weather. It's a right. really complicated uh, network of systems that all influence each other. And that's certainly the case with flu. It remains to be seen whether that's the case with SARS coronavirus too. Right. I saw that there was a, a paper where they looked at um, rhesus monkeys to see if they could be reinfected with the virus once they've been infected once. And it looked like they were were immune or, or not not highly susceptible to it. Is Did you have a look at that one? And, and is, that a, is that a good sign, I suppose, for COVID-19? Yeah, I, I have looked at that paper, and it, it is a good sign. Um, what it suggests is that uh, protective immune responses occur after primary infection, um, and neutralizing antibodies are produced uh, that can neutralize the virus and pre prevent reinfection. Um, it also argues against the possibility of antibody-dependent enhancement, which is uh, a situation that occurs for some viruses in which antibodies can actually um, increase infection. Uh, those are non-neutralizing antibodies that mediate antibody-dependent enhancement. And if there's neutralizing antibodies in the macaques, that suggests that there will be in people as well, which makes the antibody-dependent enhancement much less likely. That said, it's only four monkeys <laughs> in a study. Right. So um, I know that your audience uh, is interested in genetics. Um, rhesus macaques are highly diverse genetically and, uh, for animals is not a large number. 
um, that would be equivalent to making conclusions using a study with four patients. Right. So uh, it, you know, the caveat to all of this is that it is encouraging, but you have to remember that it's just been shown in a small group of monkeys so far. So it sounds like from all of this that the, from a social perspective, the reality is that we may be facing the current measures of social distancing, if not more uh, for, for a very long period. I saw on Twitter that you were involved in a recent um, article suggesting that we might be socially distancing for up to a year. One of our questions on Twitter was was related to this from a MD-PhD student at UPenn, Eli Kornblath, that said, what is the endpoint for social distancing? And I've had this question as well, because you've, I've seen graphs in South Korea, for example, where the case rate seems to peak and then actually start to go down. And there have been su- some suggestions that at this point, you can start to relax social distancing with some testing. What What is the evidence that this can be done on a large scale? And, and is, is this the direction we're heading? Or, or will it be more like what you suggested before with the imperial study that we may be holed up for a very long time? Yeah, so... Um... So first of all, in that article that I was quoted in, it was mostly me complaining about uh, the (laughs) the lack of testing capacity. I don't know, and I can't say if we're going to be doing this for a year or longer. Again, I don't think that it's sustainable. Um, At what point, you know, do we, are we able to socially distance by staying at home if none of us have jobs or money (laughs) or, you know, food? Um, That. That is uh, critical. And already people, um, vulnerable people, financially vulnerable people are really suffering. Um, there's, there's increasing numbers of job losses, things like that. So I think for, for those reasons that are not really scientific, I don't think that social distancing can be sustained. Right. But it's great that you brought up South Korea because they're a good example of how testing works. When we test enough people in the population to identify even these mild cases, um, then you can impl- then you can enact these types of measures uh, much more, in a much more targeted way. So if you know that that this person has really really mild disease to the point where they wouldn't know that they were positive for COVID nineteen, um, you can ask that person to themselves isolate for two to three weeks. Um, and then they won't infect anybody else during that time. Right. Uh, and that's how you you avoid sort of society-wide social distancing. Um, we are not even close to being there yet in terms of uh, our testing capacity. And we can't enact targeted measures like that to isolate um, patients who are confirmed positive, quarantine patients who are suspected that you know may have been exposed, um, if we can't accurately determine the prevalence of infection in our own community. So it, it sounds like one of the overarching themes here is we need widespread testing and, and better data. The, what you describe about testing mild cases or, or just testing more widely and doing more focused quarantining or distancing makes a lot of sense. It sounds like a logistical nightmare and, and a real challenge, but it's it's probably the only option we have, right? Because we can't just be um, you know, all remote working for 18 months. Right. And I mean, South Korea is really the model, in my opinion, the model country of sort of responding to this effectively. Um, they have made testing so accessible that, you know, people can go through the drive-through. Um, and I know that we're 
implementing that here, but certainly not at the level where anybody can just go to the drive-through and get a coronavirus test. Right now, um, from what I've heard in most communities, the testing capacity is still so low that most people can't get a coronavirus test unless they've been um, in direct contact with a confirmed case, uh, as well as um, symptomatic. So we can't just, you can't just like pop through a drive-through on your way home from work and uh, get a coronavirus test just because you're worried about it. Um, And really, I don't want people to swarm their local health departments or hospitals ask demanding coronavirus tests for all. But um, we need to get to the point where we can begin testing people who don't have symptoms and don't know if they've been in contact with the confirmed case. Um, We need to be able to regularly test healthcare workers um, who are at much higher risk of exposure. So uh, we we have a lot of work to do to get to to the point where we are able to run that many tests. What bodily fluid do you actually need to do the test? Does does it can it be saliva, blood? Does it have to be a swab of the throat, a swab in the nose? Do do you have any idea what actually is required to to do these tests effectively? Yeah, it's a nasopharyngeal swab, so um, nose and throat swabbing. Right, so it can't be detected from from blood, for example. So there have been reports in some cases of viremia, which is virus in the blood. Um, however, that's just looking for viral RNA, not the the virus, um, and it's right. not in all patients who've been tested. So right now, I mean, the test does look for viral RNA and not the virus, but it's it's really important to get that from the cells that the virus is per, like mostly dividing it or the virus is mostly replicating in and that would be um the cells of your respiratory tract right. uh, in some cases especially in you know the cases that are mild there have been reports that those people have lower viral loads so they have less virus and it's it makes it more likely that you might get a false negative test if you were to just test saliva um, or, you know, mucus. Um, so that's why you really need to get into, you need to get cells that the virus may be replicating in so that there are high enough levels of virus to detect it. Right. That makes complete sense. I want to shift a little bit to the future in terms of how we, maybe we can go to the, to the past first, but it relates to the future, which is, what can we do so that this won't happen again? And actually, this was a great question from David Lee, who's another MD-PhD student at University of Pennsylvania. What could we have done in this case? You actually mentioned that the, a very similar version of the virus was spotted in bats. Is there something that we could have done to prevent this? And, and what have we learned about maybe widespread surveillance of, of viruses that are circulating in animals or other ways we could prevent something like this happening again going forward? I think that the number one thing that could have been done to prevent this is to fund the research that found that bat virus to begin with. Um, That was found as part of a program called PREDICT, uh, which was cut, essentially. Um, It ended last year, although now it's been extended because of this crisis, uh, but not, not permanently. PREDICT was an effort to, to find viruses that might have the potential to be pathogens um, in wildlife around the world. And uh, work like that is absolutely essential to 
finding the viruses, first of all, that might emerge that we've never seen before. But second of all, you need to follow up. You need to have funding to follow up on that type of work. Um, that type of work has been done with some bat coronaviruses to show that they um, can evolve the, the capability to cause disease in other species, um, which we already know, but it that research looked much more closely at the specific changes that you would look for in the genome of those viruses that would suggest that it might be capable of infecting people. Um, right. We we don't have enough funding to do that type of research on the scale that we need to do it on. So we know that there are a lot of viruses, coronaviruses, paramyxoviruses, um, such as uh, the ones that cause Nipah. Um, there's new flu strains that circulate. There are um, other filoviruses like Ebola. Um, there's a whole bunch of different viruses that we found in animals um, and in insects or arthropods. Um, we don't have the anywhere near the capacity to begin researching how they would be as potential human pathogens. So one thing we really need is, I mean, I hate to say it, is money. We need research yes. support to do this kind of work um, to, to figure out which, um, which virus might emerge next. And of course, um, you also need to be able to have com like great computer modelers, mathematical modelers, who can also provide um, information about uh, all of these factors that would contribute to the likelihood of a virus emerging. Why was the funding cut? And I and understand often there is no reason except um, a grant reviewer somewhere didn't like the sound of it, but was it that people couldn't appropriately imagine the consequences of not funding it? Or was it um, you know, issues were there concerns about it being weaponized, or what? What were the reasons for the funding stopping? No, the the weaponized. Um, th there's actually a name for that. It's Dirk. It's dual use research of concern. It was not that would not qualify as a Dirk um, issue. Right. Now the research funding has been cut in general by the Trump administration here in the U.S. because uh, they have not placed a high priority on doing basic scientific research. Um, and PREDICT in particular was funded by the USAID. Um, that agency uh, experienced overall huge budget cuts. Um, and I'm not a policy expert either. <laughs> this <Yeah>. is my <laughs> opinion. But um, there has been a long pattern of cutting research budgets going back to uh, really to George H.W. Bush's administration. Um, and in, even in uh, under administrations that were more supportive of biomedical research, um, the NIH's budget, for example, has effectively stayed the same, only increasing with inflation. Um, and so, you know, there's just really not enough funding. Uh, and I say this as an academic who spends most of my time writing grants. Um, there's just really not enough funding to do this type of research at the scale we need to do it at uh, to, to prepare effectively for the next um, novel emerging virus. It seems like there's been a huge spike in funding now for obvious reasons with, um, you know, not, not only from the government, but from the Gates Foundation, Wellcome Trust, I think together with MasterCard, they are going to dedicate $125 million or something like that. Is, is uh, this funding being earmarked towards the kind of basic research that you just described, or is it firefighting? research still? Is it around vaccines and, and treatments or, or is it being earmarked at least some portion of it to, to surveillance or predict or other kinds of approaches? 
So um, as I said, predict has been ex- extended, extended. Um, yeah. because of this. Uh, and I'm not myself funded by Predict. Um, I'll just say that right now. But I'm funded by the um, NIAD, which is part of the NIH, and uh, I have also Defense Department funding. Um, so some of that money from the government, as part of the coronavirus stimulus packages, will definitely be put towards basic research. Um, my understanding about the Gates Foundation, in particular, is that most of that is going to um, the firefighting, essentially, um, increasing access to PPE and also preparing countries that may have less healthcare infrastructure that could that have the potential to be hit much harder. Um, some of that money probably does go to basic research, but I'm not sure how that is all divided up. In any case, um, it's wonderful to have these these um, additional research funds. And for that reason, myself included, many of us have uh, scrambled to try to um, develop SARS coronavirus two research programs, and I'm very fortunate to have collaborators who've made that possible. Um, but you know what what really needs to happen is beyond this. Once this is all over, um, those research funding levels need to to stay there. And what we've seen in the past is for Ebola in West Africa, for example, to the 2009 H1N1 uh, flu pandemic. Um, we get these spikes of research funding when the issue is urgent, and then that money doesn't. It just stick dries around. up, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm hopeful that one good thing that might come out of this for all of us is that people will realize the importance of also funding research when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, so that we can prevent the next one. Um, unfortunately, when that type of work is effective. Exactly. It looks like it's not doing anything <laughs> right. because you I, don't have another pandemic. Um, so it's kind of a catch-22, but I'm hopeful that people will, everybody will understand the urgency of dealing with this because I, as I think you said, um, we can only expect more viruses to emerge um, with our increasingly global world, um, climate change, and other factors that are disrupting ecologies. Yes. Is that besides people moving all over the world is climate change? Has it already increased or is it going to increase the the rate or the risk of these kind of breakout viruses or or pandemics? It's hard to say, but I would suspect that it does. Um, There's climate change is having a huge impact both on where people are living as well as where animals and arthropods are living. Um, For example, here in the U.S., um, we have mosquitoes that normally lived in Central America that have moved to Texas and Florida. Um, We have tick species that have increased their geographic range. Um, All of these effects uh, where ecosystems are disrupted by climate change um, puts all sorts of new animals and arthropods in contact with us um, that weren't there before. And that disruption has the potential to allow for zoonotic spillover or the the transmission of novel viruses from wildlife to people. Right. It's, uh, I think, a call to action that we need to fund this more diligently and not just uh, fight fires when they come up. Absolutely. So just to close out here, I'm conscious of your time that you have uh, probably one of the busiest schedules in the world right now. What what are you specifically going to be working on for the next two or three years, assuming 
all of your grants come through in in two, three years, four years, five years, however long it takes time. Um, what's what's your research going to have delivered? Right. So I am working right now um, with some collaborators who are developing animal models of SARS coronavirus two to look at the host response, um, which is basically what I do. Um, I use transcriptomics to study gene expression, um, the gene expression changes that occur in animals um, with severe disease versus ones that don't have severe disease and try to to use um, systems biology approaches and machine learning and that sort of thing to identify um, molecular signatures uh, that can predict whether um, a patient ultimately will become uh, very sick or not. Um, looking for correlates of protection uh, that that uh, would be induced by a vaccine um, and trying to understand really how the host um, overall responds to infection with SARS coronavirus 2 um, from a variety of different perspectives, including animals, patients, uh, and so forth, maybe cell culture. Um, I'll also continue to work on my favorite Ebola, um, as well as MERS coronavirus. I have a couple papers in the pipeline that I need to finish up on MERS. Um, and you know, any, any other interesting new viruses that, uh, come to my attention, um, I'm ready to, to develop animal models and work on them. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with us. And we'll make sure we share out all of your research over the next couple months, weeks and years so people can keep track of it. I just really appreciate how you actually take the time to uh, tell everyone about your work and and speak about it in a way that's successful, because I think it makes such a difference, not just in times of crisis like these, but more generally. Yeah. And I mean, I think that it's it's really important for scientists to be able to communicate about this because this is a really scary disruptive time for all of us and um, including scientists. Uh, and I think that having reliable information, having scientists speak directly to the public about what we're doing, about what we know and what we don't know, um, that type of information is really empowering to people. And if we are going to, as a society, respond to this virus um, in a way that minimizes harm to as many people as possible, we need to have everybody on board and engaged. So I think it's it's really critical for scientists to be talking to people about this, um, to, to invite the public to join in the discussion about public health because it affects all of us. So thank you for giving me this opportunity, Patrick. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And if anyone wants to follow you, they can follow you. It's at Angie Rasmussen on Twitter. Is that right? Angie underscore Rasmussen. Great. Okay, wonderful. Thanks so much. And I know you're just starting the day in Seattle, so... Uh, best of luck and, and thanks for all the work you do. Thank you so much, Patrick. Take care. Bye.